This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope, a podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. Welcome back to our conversation. We join our host, Trevor, in part two of our conversation with Reverend Diane Strickland, who continues to share with us how we can work with trauma. The pandemic has has created a wonderful opportunity to talk about trauma so that we can educate people and help them have a vocabulary and a, a frame of understanding what's happening to them or to someone else. Um, and that is really the key thing, is to start people understanding there's a thing, it's called trauma, and, and a lot of it was never called that because it was, it was the perpetration of uh, abuse. And, and, and all of those perpetrators of abuse uh, were protected. Diane has been in ministry for over 30 years, including being a national executive in the Presbyterian Church of Canada. She has a passion for helping those who have experienced trauma and has a private practice for trauma-informed support and ministry. Diane honors her two sons, to whom her primer, Trauma-Informed Ministry, a primer for ministers and ministries, is dedicated. She says her sons are intelligent, hilarious, and courageous every single day, and notes, is there anything more wonderful than when your children surpass you and then reach back to bring you along? We are so appreciative to continue learning with Diane on how we can work with trauma in our lives. Well, Diane, it's wonderful to be back for uh, part two uh, of our time together. And it's such a blessing to have you with us as we gather. In, In the week that we've been apart, it just seems like our theme of trauma is all around us. And I know some people sometimes get tired of hearing that word trauma or it's traumatizing to hear it uh we want to put our heads in the sand there's just so much happening in our our world that uh feels like you know outer or inner trauma so as we gather again you know how are you and then you know what is trauma again just so we can get our heads around before we dive in deep to what it means to have, you know, a trauma-informed life or a trauma-informed ministry or a trauma-informed institution. Thanks, uh, Trevor. It's great to be here, and uh, I'm doing pretty well. Um, But I have a lot of good coping skills that I've developed over the past decade, (laughs) so they've come in handy. and, and what is trauma is, is actually a huge question because for a long time, it was very narrowly defined at, out of the military experience and armed combat and people who did not do well coming out of that. Um, now we, we understand that trauma is, uh, well, the working definition that I have is trauma is our response to a devastating or disturbing event that overwhelms our capacity to cope. So we, we are stopped 
by it. And uh, it manifests problematic cognitive, physical, emotional, behavioral, and spiritual symptoms. And those can be temporary or long-term. Uh, that's how you get different classifications of a, a trauma problem. So that's what I work with. And um, part of our struggle with identifying trauma and just going back to the military example is to say that while we, we can accept that people who have endured um, impossible things on, on battlefields, which we now know that we can go back into other wars, not, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. just Afghanistan trouble, for example, but, but that uh, in our own military uh, life here in Canada, trauma has been generated, for example, yeah. in sexual harassment and, and assault for example, and we've had to have that moved into, uh, sort of mentally, people have had to understand that is also trauma. So we've widened the, widened the categories. Can I ask you like some quick uh, yes or no questions? Is this trauma? Sure. So for, so for instance, is, for instance, losing a loved one um, uh, who's died, could that be traumatic? Yes, and, and that's um, what we have, the hardest, piece to grasp is that our response to an event that is unique and so what another person is able to integrate and manage another person might not be able to and uh, and so we yeah. have unique responses well how about being laid off from a job absolutely yeah um all of it's the same thing everyone's it, unique and but yeah. we we look at someone and say well why can't they get over that and yeah. then but then something happens to us and the other person's looking at us and saying, well, why can't they get past that? So and what about the, is the p pandemic? I know we talked about it, but is that traumatic? Yeah. For okay. a lot of people, it has been very traumatic. How and about, so natural disasters possibly? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And that goes on um, a long time. Mental, can mental illness or unwellness be traumatic? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, so we're and looking at a, a large range here then. Like and you said, it's yes, it's and living scary. with it can be traumatic. Um, and I heard you write that a traumatic event is where are we no longer able to cope with it. Yeah, we're and, overwhelmed. And overwhelmed, and that amplifies this a whole range of symptoms, which then sort of cause our life to uh, implode or, yeah. or to yeah yeah. They have, I mean, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn, and flop. Is what you may have heard is as what happens to people when they're terrified or you know they're they're traumatized so those those categories are kind of the ones that people hear a lot I've never heard I've heard I have a different word for the flop but I can't oh. remember it right oh. now yeah but I like that flop yeah well that and, and it's just because they use F's so the, all the words yes. are F's so uh, it really the one you might hear is collapse so when my dog cat caught a squirrel and brought it back to me as a present, the squirrel was, you know, limp hanging out of his jaws, you know, toenails on either end, dragging on the, the driveway. And the moment I said, hey, stop and drop to the dog, the dog dropped the squirrel, the squirrel took off. Squirrel. Because <laughs> it, it had flopped. Yes. Yeah. And its strategy was successful. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in the past... You know, it's been sort of, you didn't talk about trauma, and it was hard to find 
coping skills and information about it. And it's so wonderful that uh, you've brought such consciousness to this in a way that um, helps us access it uh, with your primer, which is amazing resource if people need it and we're listed in the notes. Um, it's, it's a wonderful way to bring consciousness to trauma, which if I'm truthful, I've experienced trauma. <laughs> uh, I'm experiencing it, you know, even right now sometimes. Mm -hmm. So, so why, why do we need a, a you know, this, a conscious model and, and what's, what's important about what you're bringing to us? Well, the pandemic has, has created a wonderful opportunity to talk about trauma so that we can educate people and help them have a vocabulary and a frame of understanding what's happening to them or to someone else. Um, and that is really the key thing, is to start people understanding there's a thing, it's called trauma, and, and a lot of it was never called that because it was, it was the perpetration of uh, abuse. And, mm -hmm. and, and all of those perpetrators of abuse uh, were protected yes. by different kinds of things. So we didn't actually talk about them. And, and now we, we can, we can say this is what trauma, this trauma, uh, this is the impact, and this is what helps people recover. And here's what doesn't help people recover. And here, in fact, is a model of how an, every single person, not, not necessarily uh, clinical psychologists or anything, this is what every person can do with a trauma-informed model so that they can respond effectively. And there's a couple of opportunities with the pandemic. One is the direct one, where yeah. we, we know people who lost people, who, who became yeah. uh, seriously ill, and that was traumatic yeah. for them, if they, even if they did recover. We know people who have been impacted with their jobs, uh, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things that are directly related to the pandemic. And yeah. then there's a whole secondary category where, um, and this is what happens in any large traumatic event, which is people uh, that I think I talked about it last our last recording about the trauma channel getting opened and mm -hmm. other past traumas go live again. And so yeah. when we're we're not always talking about the pandemic, when someone wants to talk to me, it's about something else. And it's often something that they actually dealt with, you know, maybe had two, two yeah. or five years of therapy about it. Yeah. And now there's another layer that has just opened up for them. So um, that's that's why we need to be able to, to have a vocabulary and a model. And uh, the third piece is that's arisen here is that that all, people have contacted me about the primer because mm -hmm. before the pandemic they were living with traumatized people. And mm -hmm. now they said, could this help me? Could this model mm -hmm. help me support my family member type yeah. of thing? Well, it's interesting as you're talking, like the pandemic has sort of been an unveiling, like you said, of past traumas. Like during the pandemic, we've had Black Lives mm -hmm. Movement, which mm -hmm. is about the trauma of racism. We've had the Me Too movement, which is a mm -hmm. trauma of misogyny and sexual assault and emotional assault, spiritual assault. 
Uh, we've had the um, Truth and Reconciliation Mission, Missing and Indigenous Two-Spirit Women, uh, and then also then the, the residential school trauma with uh, the unmarked graves and children. Uh, so yeah, there's all this, uh, there's, there's, and then there's all the personal trauma. So it's, it's, it's really real, isn't it? I mean, this is gritty in some ways. Uh, I know yes. we're sort of talking a little higher level, but, but it affects us. Yes, and, and it's difficult to talk about it. Um, in a, you know, in one context, I, what I realized was that when people are stressed and sometimes in positions of leadership, um, what, what happens is the, the integration of inclusivity, for example, is sidelined. And so that process is like abruptly stopped and people go backwards. And so I have, in fact, dealt with more latent sexism in the last year and a half than I have for a very long time, where I am literally like, what is, is this 1980 again? Like, <laughs> so we can't blame it on Trump? No. Well, <laughs> sure. You can blame everything on Trump. <laughs> but, but no, but this is key. Yeah. Like, you know, yes. it's beyond. The, there's something going on yes. here. That, that's people. And, and it's very upsetting because... Mm-hmm. You know, you're thinking, hello, you know, hello, knock yes. that off. But um, they're also stressed out of their Tinkerbell, and that's why it's happening. And uh, so there's, and, and the racism, same thing. Um, yeah. People are getting uh, polarized more quickly. And I think that's why. It's because the, the process of inclusivity around all of these issues and the people who are the issue um, that they, you know, they're actual human beings on both the people who, who need to be respected and the people who have to learn how to do that. Um, we're all in the pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it takes less to trigger people and the people who have been working sincerely perhaps on change are regressing for a while oh, and their self-awareness yeah. is just gone. Well, working with trauma takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. And then the flight, freeze, and flop, uh, it just really takes away our cognitive ability and ref- and our ability to be conscious Yes. when we're trapped in that amygdala thing. Yeah. And so, yeah. we try to control then. Yeah. We're in yeah. a panic mode and, well, I, you know, we, we, I think I, I talk about it as, oh, we hold the reins harder and tighter. Mm for a lot of people who are in leadership. So can you can you um, unpack the model for us okay. that will help us let go of the reins and be more aware and work with our own personal trauma and then the trauma in our families or institutions we serve or, you know, it's everywhere. Yeah. So the first part is what we were just doing, which is to become trauma-informed. And some people think that that's the model and they think, well, I know the word trauma informed, I know trauma aware, therefore I'm doing it. <laughs> no, <laughs> there's, there's the process of being informed is to understand all the kinds of trauma, to understand all of the symptomology, symptomology so yeah. that um, when you're hearing something and you have sometimes a visceral reaction to someone, for example, who's incredibly uh, controlling 
or being just rigid and will not consider another option, that, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that's really frustrating. And mm-hmm. it can make yeah. us, you know, dismiss the person, write them off, or just get angry. Yeah. And um, what being trauma-informed is, is about, oh, wait a minute, this might be something else. This, is, this might mm-hmm. be something else going on here. This person is floundering, and this is yeah. what they're doing to make it through this. Do you have an example maybe for us, like a, a down-to-earth example? Sure. Um, when for One of the examples I use in the primers, I talk about um, one of the principles, which is safety, and yeah. how someone might have figured that out for themselves is when, for example, if they go to church, um, they may leave during the last hymn. Mm. They, they cannot be in coffee hour. Mm. They cannot talk to people. They know they can't do it normally, that they'll, it'll, they'll be weird. And so they exit oh. early. Mm-hmm. And we may think they don't like people or they just arrogant or they're, you know, actually they're, they're, trying, to, they're trying to participate and that's as much as they can do. And yeah. the next level up is that they, they, um, they may be the person who puts the coffee on every Sunday and they, they cannot go into the coffee hour room, yeah. but they can stay in the kitchen and watch it. Uh, and that's wow, how they that's stay so safe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I used to think, look at those people and think, you know, you know, what are you doing? Like get out of the kitchen, you know? And now I say, Oh, maybe they can't, this is how, this is yeah. what they can do. It's all they can do. Yeah. And so like when if you're, you know, someone up front leading and you see them Mm -hmm. leave, it's not about you. It wasn't that you, you know, maybe you did give a bad sermon, but, you know, but (laughs) it's not about you. It's so I'm here. You're saying like having this trauma informed thing helps you see people differently and not think it's all about you. Yes. Or that they have a um, a problem uh, or that they're just bad. You know, they're they're really difficult people. Yes. You know, or not very friendly. And we, yeah. we often um, do that. Now, I'm sure that there are people who are just difficult and <laughs> people who aren't friendly. But we have a tendency to to do that first. And, and now when we're looking, um, especially in organizations where we have a lot of people around the table all the mm-hmm. time, um, that it, it can be at work. You know, when I think back, now I know someone who had like an absolutely rigid routine every day. Uh-huh. And they did the same thing every day. They could do it a certain way. And they didn't like it to be done any other way. And yeah. and everybody knew who that was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be the only way they can work. And so they, if they, if they aren't allowed to work that way, you know, they're, they're in a, they're desperate. They don't have that's their coping mechanism yeah, that's their coping mechanism so yeah. um and so you may have so, people like yeah. that yeah well it's sort of like i see this image as you're talking is that like we each have like little trauma folks on our shoulders we're carrying around sometimes mm-hmm. we've dealt with it or mm-hmm. integrated but when you get in a group you have all these characters and things yeah. and energies yeah. they're all happening yeah, they're all happening, and we don't always know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a universe sometimes going on behind some yeah. of that stuff. This is not about 
being armchair psychologists at all. You, you're not going to no. be able to fix whatever's behind there, but you yeah. can make it possible for people to find a way to be with the group or be in the in the event or participate and bring something to to the table so that they can do something. So that's why knowing the symptomology is really important. So we start thinking differently and stopped uh, just thinking that people are, you know, are not nice or, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're weird or all those things we think about people. So that's trauma informed. Is well, that's even for ourselves understanding, oh mm -hmm. my goodness, uh, I have this symptom or mm -hmm. it's not to judge or it's like no. an opportunity to step yes. forward. And that's the second piece is self-awareness is most of us don't understand. And um, one of the things I do in some workshops is, is when we're working with the symptomology categories, because there's pages of symptoms and you think, oh, geez, you know, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I, I say, okay, which category do you think you are least vulnerable in? Which category do you think you are most vulnerable in? And now look for a symptom. Has anyone ever accused you of being like that? Or, or asked you <laughs> why you are that, being yeah. that? And, and yeah. what we discover is that often the thing, the place where we think, you know, we're not going to have a symptom is where all the yeah. symptoms manifest. Mm -hmm. Because often it's our strength trying to get us through something. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. so that's why the symptoms, as tedious as it is to look at them all, that's why. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. You know, what of these do I know in myself? What do I do when, when I'm in a bad way or when something hideous has happened? What do I do? Well, I actually know yeah. what I do now. Yeah. And it doesn't mean I don't do it. <laughs> I do it less, I hope. But I'm, or if I do it, I'm saying, oh my gosh, there, I've done it. I've done it. You know, <laughs> and just yeah. cultivating some awareness about that in yourself is to be trauma informed. And so, that brings a little gentleness yeah. too, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And then it's like, oh, be kind. That's, yeah. you know. And so the second piece is that once you, once you have in the process of becoming trauma informed, then you become trauma responsive, which is when you work with the principles that we know are more effective in uh, responding to traumatized people. And that's the model. And, mm. and I work with six principles. What shall we jump in and talk about the six principles? Sure. Or is there anything else you want to say first? No, I think that's that's good. Um, it's it's a deliberate choice to to work with the model. As soon as you think this, you want to switch gears and go into the model. And uh, there are four, five, and six principle models out there. And, and I adapted a six uh, principle model because, um, well, as I go through, I'll, I'll explain that. Um, and the, the first principle is safety. Uh, the second one is trustworthiness. We'll talk about these a little more individually. Uh, well, uh, third one is choice. The fourth one is collaboration. The fifth one is empowerment. And the sixth one, which I think makes the difference for people, mm -hmm. for example, like in the United Church of Canada, or people who try to live with a justice and mercy orientation in their mm -hmm. life, um, is the awareness of and sensitivity to identifiable 
trauma-impacted groups within society. So in other words, um, we have to be aware if we're getting symptomology, okay, this, this somebody from a specific group who I know, you know, is constantly overcoming things in life. Yeah. Um, and that is a principle. It's not just a, it's a principle. And, mm-hmm. and that is what is, I think, behind a lot of our justice concerns. So those are the, the six principles that, that I use. And, and that model um, is an ad- uh, the one that I use is adapted from the Center for Disease Control model. And they're the only ones that I could ever find that had a six yeah. principle. Yeah. So, um, shall we start with the first sure. one? Should we just jump in? Safety. Let's Come jump on. in. Let's jump in. Let's jump in. Okay. Safety is, of course, the first one and the most important one, and um, it's it's the one that you visit more often than all the others because when you don't know what to do. I always go back to safety. I was thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not sure where I should go next. I don't, I, I'm looking at the principles, nothing's jumping out. I go back to safety. I just create safety again for someone. And uh, so safety, what do you mean by safety? Yeah. What makes people feel safe is, is yep. how I, and what, what makes pe- you feel safe? Um, uh, because the model, and this is probably the unique yep. feature of the one I use, which is that there, it's not just about what you give other people. It's about mm-hmm. what you give yourself at this point. Uh, so how do we to, all feel safe mm-hmm. together? And this is important because we're all in the pandemic. Oh, yeah, the pandemic's like... Yeah. yeah. I, it's like, what a mixed bag. Yeah, so it's <laughs> not just me. People are fighting over safety. Yeah, it's, it's not me sitting in with the flood victims in High River, and I wasn't in the... Well, I was... Calgary had flood, but I was completely unaffected by it. Yes. So that's not this situation. This situation is I'm in the pandemic too. And what has yes. happened to me in the pandemic? So um, you need to think both ways. And I, the question I always give in the workshops that aren't specifically about this yet, but is where is to ask where is the anxiety get, gathering for the person? Mm. And for me. Yes. Um, where's the anxiety gathering? And so I might just say, okay, um, you know, what, what do you worry about? Or what, what's on your mind right now? And just find out where their anxiety is and then try to create some safety around that. Um, can I mitigate some of the dynamics? So for example, um, once I tr- teach uh, a coping tool of, of breathing, and this, this is often the opportunity I do, I say, you know what? Here's how I create safety for myself. I do this breathing thing, and it's mm-hmm. the shortest distance to your nervous system. And so I may simply do that with the person. And it's amazing how that transforms the situation. Hmm. Where we're settled yeah. again, we're grounded again, we're safe, we can then move forward. Um, it, it can be uh, about things like, are we in a public place? Are we in a private place? Is the door open? Is the door shut? I mean, and I, so what I do is I always ask, are, is this, is this a good place for you feeling okay here? Would you rather be somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Or can we do something else in the room? Like if I notice that they're, they're not really settling, that's mm-hmm. kind of, 
and and also uh, creating um, an environment that that appears like it's welcoming for them. Yeah. Well, with the pandemic, it, it just seems safety's been thrown out the window uh, in in groups. It's mm -hmm. <coughs> yes. Um, yeah. I it's this is what's wrong. And, and if we could talk about it this way, we might get further along to say, well, I, I'm, you know, some of the churches in my area here actually had um, in-person worship. I'm not going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not going. I, I've worked really, really hard to stay safe and yes. be careful. And I'm not going to do that. I, my interaction with people's minimal still because yeah. that's what I need to feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. It's so personal, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, like I heard of one church uh, that used to have 200, 250 people pre pandemic. They just, they opened up mm -hmm. uh, in person and they had on average nine people show up. Yeah. So that's, so that, that's exactly it, Trevor. And that would be, you would say that safety. First and foremost, it's safety. Yeah. Um, Even uh, with maybe masking and physical distancing, it, it's really it's really saying. So, it, what does it say to you then, around safety? Well, uh, you know, this is why a risk assessment process is so important because it it includes the values of a group like a church mm -hmm. or another organization. Yeah. Uh, any organization. Um, yes. Has values, and. And often, you know, they put those mission statements and value statements on their walls, but they don't ever refer to them ever again. <laughs> but um, you have to find out what those values are. And you have to say, if this is our value, what does it mean right now? Yeah. And uh, sometimes we have to understand, okay, well, where, what, can we absorb the risk? That's the question comes out of risk assessment. It's after you've done all the work and you've done all the figuring out what you can mitigate and what you can't. And then you've looked at, okay, we can't mitigate that enough. What are the worst possible outcomes here? And when there are things like, well, some we could kill somebody. I mean, yes. Yeah. That's that's our problem for church mm -hmm. is that 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 and and for churches um, that have had that happen. Yeah. Um, that's not a little thing. That's a huge no. thing to know that worshiping and thinking they would be all right and and yeah. and sort of deciding that without seriously assessing the risk. Yeah. We absorbed it. Yeah. And that then we're paying the price. So I I think what we've understood now and I think this is good is that by watching the way different, for example, example governments respond, yes. we've understood, okay, we cannot count on them to in fact do that last piece. We, because when, when a government says, well, yeah, you can have in-person worship now, they're not saying it's safe. They're saying you, it's, we're giving you permission to absorb the risk. That's what they're yes. saying. It's very different. Wow, what a, can, I, can you say it again? They're, I'll say it again. They're giving you permission, uh, permission to absorb the risk. Because they don't want the responsibility yeah. to absorb and the risk anymore. And so it's your responsibility at that yeah. point. And, and 
I've made that point a couple times in, in uh, church workshops, and it's it's a very difficult truth for people to absorb, to, oh, to yeah. accept. Okay, that's yes. what it is. But that is what it is. So we have all kinds of values in play. So if I hear you right on this first uh, principle of safety, is that say, let's just use church as an example. So you have you have all these different folks in community with different personal experiences of trauma and different needs for safety. Mm-hmm. And they're all, and I say they're coming, they're all coming into a building. And so you have this mix uh, and all these needs for safety. And, how can you just say a little more of how you might work with that because I, I assume if you don't get safety it's hard to move on to trustworthiness mm-hmm. is that true yeah yeah well um, this is this is the problem of um, regulating people self-regulation and then regulating others so um, you know my friend was on a flight um, and everyone had a mask on but there were a number of people who had the mask down under their nose Mm. and the anxiety that created you know why why was that okay why did the flight crew not say you have to put well we now know that there's another safety issue for (sighs) for crews in airplanes of of where what hill you're going to die on yes on and uh and then I had another friend who, who uh, was a flight attendant and, and, and uh, told the story of a colleague who had someone who took their mask off on the flight and had a bag of chips and, and would take a chip and really slowly and chew it really slowly. In other words, they're going to take the whole flight to eat the chips and have the mask off. And, and the flight attendant simply went up and said, you put the mask on? And I'm taking your chips. You get them when you get off this plane. <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the way to do it. Um, but we don't. We have to look in our in our uh, neighborhoods, like in our mm-hmm. stores, and in our churches, and in other places. Who is regulating? Who is going to yeah. be the person to say we need you to put your mask on? Yes. Um, I, you know, I think every, it's very hard. The aching I've had to, to sing hymns. I mean, that's mm-hmm. probably the most devastating thing for me has been yeah. that. So I'm always singing with, you know, recordings on YouTube. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, what do we do when someone simply starts to sing and then others start to sing and it's a big, yeah. how are you going to stop that? So, and other people are, are realizing okay, I'm not safe anymore, and so I can't come back. I'm out of here. I'm out of here, and I'm not coming back. Yeah. So, so we had, and those people who started to sing, I mean, it was a deep mm-hmm. need and longing mm-hmm. that they were expressing. It's not like they were bad yeah. people trying to kill other people. Yeah. Um, they simply, um, at that moment, were overcome with, the grief and the loss of not being able to sing. Mm-hmm. 
so they say. And uh, safety is all around us, and so we don't know if people are going to regulate. And so you need someone to help with that regulation. Yes. So that means they must have to have a pretty high awareness and working on themselves at the same time. I mean, yeah. nothing's perfect. No one's well, perfect. and and uh, you know, God help the poor store managers and the yep. the um, and owners. and the clergy, for example. Yep. Um, oh, my dog has just heard a, a horn. Um, That's we have common noises on here. Okay. okay, he he has freaks out when there's a car horn. <laughs> we don't know what that's oh. about, but. Anyway, that, yeah, that's okay. It's <laughs> he has some trauma. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, he came with a lot of trauma. So, so, <laughs> so, that's great. It's yeah. great. Let's be let's be kind to yes. him. Yes, we we are. We're very usually I'm very. I'm sure kind. you are. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, the safety thing, um, we're no longer sure because we're in this. I can't even keep track of the guidelines anymore. I don't know about yeah. you, but I'm never sure what it what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do anymore, and and uh, when it's we're safe, in Alberta. Well, yeah, and and there is no guidelines. Yeah, and and so um, talk about yeah, talk about the buck being passed down the the ladder. Yeah, yeah. talk yeah. So, so safety is is safety. one where where you could have a lot of polarity created. Yes. Well, how trust about trustworthiness. Well, it's connected, isn't it? Uh, we because... can spend. We could spend like. <laughs> yeah. You might want to. Yeah. Make, yeah. <laughs> spend forever on each one of these. They're so yeah. interesting and so we have. They're so new that there's so much to talk about. So yeah, yeah trustworthy. Well, well, you know that's why do we trust others and why do yeah. we think? Um, why do people trust us? Um, mm -hmm. And and that varies again for for people. Um, trustworthiness is is part of our problem where we've had leadership that have waffled and have have seemed to be trying to gain political points by mm -hmm, its decisions, mm -hmm. so we don't trust them anymore. And, or, you know, yeah, we just don't. Chief medical officers even yes, sometimes. Yes, yes. And so, but why do people trust others? And it's interesting, you know, when I was doing disaster work, a natural disaster work, um, yeah. sometimes people would come in and they knew, they would know that I was a minister, but they would yeah. say, well, why... Why are you doing this? And why do you? Why are you qualified to do this? And yep. um, so, you know, having um, not just and and I I could do that by saying, well, I've done this before, and here's where I did this, and here's the training that I've had, and here's what I've achieved in certifications. It's it's a crucial thing, and it's it's interesting that um, you know in. I don't know about you in ministry, but I don't think I even ever had my degrees or anything hanging on an office wall. No. But that, that credentialing of your trustworthiness can become extremely important in a traumatic situation. Mm -hmm. So this is why I'm here. And, and, uh, and some of that is that they're sick and tired of people who don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. So they want to know if you're just another one of those. Well, we're living in a time where we've flattened um, truth mm -hmm. so that everybody's truth is equal or everybody's opinion's mm -hmm. equal. Uh, and so what do you trust? So, uh, you know, our presence with other people 
Uh, and, you know, in ministry, we talk a lot about presence. Yeah. Um, and your comfort with yourself and not being triggered yourself. Uh, our own alarms can go. That happens all the time. And so we have to be able to calm ourselves mm-hmm. and to be aware, oh, gee, look at I'm triggered right now. I, I got to breathe my way yeah. out of that one. Um, but there are other simple things uh, which show that we're trustworthy, which is when we will allow someone to actually tell the story mm. and and not need to respond right away. And and we're not trustworthy if if um, we we don't have the capacity to hear it, what they're going to tell us. Mm. Um, That's. So, so you're saying presence creates trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in my last chat with you, I talked about how I'm painfully aware before almost every appointment. I feel yeah. I have nothing. I feel, mm. you know, who, who are you? Who do you think you are all the time? And, mm-hmm. and I have to go through this continuously, okay, it's too late for that, Diane, because <laughs> someone's going to come through the door. Because <laughs> the FaceTime thing is already yeah. ringing, <laughs> and I have to uh, accept. I just have to accept myself, and that is part of how that presence is created: is by me being present, um, and and not I, listening. I may I I have to write things down sometimes about. You know where okay I, I could talk about that and I'll just scribble it down as I'm listening um, but I try not to interrupt someone mm-hmm. and but you know in ministry and I, I think and other like all other positions where and roles where we we can have an important conversation with someone um, we have the ability to shut it down in a heartbeat and I don't know about you, but in ministry, I, can, I, I used to think about this. Um, okay, I can tell this person's going to tell me something that's going to be hideous and awful, and I don't really want to hear it, but because I'm tired too, and yeah. I'm, you know, I'm sick of this, and well, you know, whatever reasons, and I have nothing to help the person. Um, but I make a decision to be hospitable to the story anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, I think lots of people in their everyday life are experiencing that with family members, colleagues Mm -hmm. at work, all over the Mm -hmm. place. It's like we ask, how are you in our opening line? But we never really want to know that answer, do we? Yeah. And when someone actually... That's trustworthiness. Yes. Trustworthiness is is that, um, you know, a person responds without... um, And trying to... What people do is try to diminish the trauma you're trying to tell them about yeah. because they know it's too big. So they do blame shifting. Well, you know, mm-hmm. what did you do? You know, what did you wear when you were raped? You know, that's where all that crap comes mm-hmm. from. Yep. Or, yep. or um, they gaslight and say, oh, I, I don't think it actually happened that way. You know? oh. um, or it doesn't mean that. I think it means this. And mm. um, Or tone policing, which is saying, well, you know, if you could stop, you're, you're so uh, intense right now that you're very angry and and so we it's, it's the ad hominem response mm. actually it's a logical mm-hmm. fallacy where we won't listen to what they say mm. 
by critiquing them yeah by the way they say it and we do that all the time with certain groups that's why the sixth principle is going to be so important is to understand that um, like there are some words we'll use that are marked semantically like we we'll say well that's that sounds very spiteful well Mm. nobody calls men spiteful that's a that's a female thing that's marked plus female and yeah, that's, no one calls men aggressive either. No, no, or um, uppity. Yeah. That's a person of color critique. Mm, yeah. it, that may not even use that word, but yeah. that's... So we'll use tone policing in a way that will shut it down. So trustworthiness is about... Um, it's about making it possible for someone to tell the story. Yeah, space. Having yeah. space. Um, so when when we do that shutting down, does that affect the third principle choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's trustworthiness. If you've done it right, um, you can present choices, and this is what I often do. And it, the fact is that most traumatized people feel they're in a corner and they don't have any choices. So. I may say, okay, there's three things, three ways for us to go right now. You know, we mm. can talk a little more about that, mm-hmm. or we can um, talk about something else entirely because you're feeling um, that's enough of that you want to do mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Or we can do this and, and say something else now, and or I'm going to teach you another coping tool. Mm-hmm. That's a classic three prong, and I always use three choices, and that's that's because of the either or tyranny which makes people <laughs> feel like if they make yes. if there's two choices they're going to make the wrong one but oh, if there's yeah. three choices you take away that anxiety right away mm. but wow, that's for, powerful it is traumatized people everything is at stake all the time mm. so when you only give them two options they become terrified that they're going to choose the wrong one and that will eliminate all their options. So I always work with more than two options in choice. Three, I love three options, three yeah. options. We have yeah. to remember that. And it, it's quite, um, and it, it's, uh, in, the, in the primer I talk about really simple things. Like I might, I think I use the friendly giant analogy of where he used to show all the chairs you could choose at the beginning of the show. Oh, and yes. and oh, that was my favorite part. Because <laughs> well, I this could da- this dates us, but yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> but you know, there was a rocking chair, and like, yes. like, and there was different chairs, and and I start that way. Yeah, they're different I, sizes too. So I in in the room, I always create three kinds of chairs, and I describe them to the people and say. Okay, now that, if you have back trouble, that's probably going to be more comfortable for you because there's more support. That one, that's a couch. And you know what? You can just pick your feet up or stretch Mm -hmm. right out. You know, you can do what you want. Or this one's a very comfortable armchair and and, Mm. uh, you might feel good there. Literally, that is a big deal because they haven't had a choice in weeks about anything. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a giant thing and it's a tiny thing. Yeah. Wow. Do you want to talk about collaboration? 
Yes. Okay. I'm just still pondering the three choices, but yes. let's move on to collaboration. Yeah. Uh, That's number four. Yeah. Collaboration is, um, is about working with other people. And um, the first thing I do uh, when I talk to traumatized people, not the first thing, but along the way after I do all these other, they've chosen their chair and we've established safety and trustworthiness. <laughs> um, I usually ask them, tell me what you've learned about this so far. What, what have you figured out and what questions do you have about this situation? I, most people who are traumatized have a, tried, they have done a hundred things before they've talked to me. They have tried to solve their problem a hundred yes. different ways. Um, and so I assume they know stuff about this, that this thing they're in and this mess they've got and the symptoms. And that's the first thing is to to make it so that I'm not there to fix them, I want to find out what they know because mm. we're going to collaborate and I need to know what they know first about. And they'll tell you, they'll, they'll often the first thing to say is, well, nobody wants to hear about it, number one. Yeah. And, and uh, two, um, the, the data keeps changing. I can't get a straight answer out of anyone. And that's mm. all the time. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, the putting in a, in a claim for the disaster recovery program in yes. High River was a nightmare because uh, the criteria changed every three days, and you couldn't keep up. So you'd you'd work for three days with a client on their yeah. on their submission, and then I had a mole in the office who would call me and say, "Diane, they've just changed it again," and they'd tell me what they changed, and then we'd have to go back and change it. Yep. So, you know, they know stuff and, yep. and, uh, they know, for example, that it's very hard to get the system to work. So you find out a lot of stories just by finding out what they know. And also, uh, collaboration isn't about, um, isn't about control hmm. and, you have to be willing to say, well, this is my role. It's this yeah. part. And I have to trust everybody else doing their other parts in a collaborative yeah. effort. Do, do you sometimes say, I don't know? Oh, yeah. I did. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and uh, often it's just, I don't know because I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And so if, if I don't know and you don't know, is there anyone we, we can, who might know, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. maybe that's an unknowable. Yeah. Huh, so, that, so collaboration. Okay. Yeah. So you, so then with a trauma informed sort of model or, uh, uh, it, it's, it's not about being a savior, a fixer, uh, having the answers all the time then is what I hear you saying. Yeah. Um, what you want to do first is is uh, know, figure out what they know. So figure out what they know. And what they can tell you that you don't know mm. about this. Hmm. And, um, and does that lead to principle number five, empowerment? Yeah. Because it, it's, it's um, I mean, uh, 
I've had people just cry after they tell me this stuff, and I'm like, oh, geez, what did I do now? You know, like, what did I do? And and they'll say, that's the first time anybody's treated me like I know anything about this. Mm. And and that could be like 40 years worth of it. Yeah. This term gaslighting is so new, but it's a practice that's been going on for so long, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That we're told we don't know. Yeah. We don't know ourselves. We don't yeah. know our feelings. We don't know how, like, we, we've heard many people in trauma have heard you just, you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so empowering people um, is, is part of that. I mean, it happens when we do that. And how do we empower others? How do we empower uh, ourselves? And um, in, in empowerment, I opt for really simple things. What what is what is empowerment like? What's like, yeah. I, when I hear that, I think yeah. of a goal. But what what are what do you mean by empowerment? I I will say really simple things like, I think you have what you need to get past some mm. of this, mm. Um, and I can give you pieces that that you can do on your own, so that you won't need me all the time. Mm. Um, you know those kinds of things uh, I in a in a difficult moment um, I, I say well but I believe in you hmm. and that is sounds simple it's not um, oh it's huge because we don't believe in ourselves anymore we don't even know who we are if we're traumatized yeah. sometimes and if we're in the worst of it you know we, we feel we've lost ourselves and and so we don't we don't believe in ourselves anymore because maybe the things we used to be able to do we can't do them right now. Yeah. And it's terrifying. Yeah. And and so for for me to say I believe in you and I don't say it if I don't mean it. I, but I always mean it. You know. Like, yeah. I I I know it could become one of those T-shirt slogans yeah. or whatever bumper sticker. Yeah. Like, like say I have trauma. Well, I have trauma. How can I empower myself? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we empower ourselves too in this in this uh, fifth? Yeah. Um, one. I I often I have a list of things that I I have done that I've been able to do, and that this is why um, I think last week I talked about the to do list. You have it has to you have to start really ridiculously far back. Um, because otherwise you set yourself up to fail. And, and that's mm -hmm. probably one of the things is that if you can build a uh, to-do list that you can actually do, that is uh, hugely empowering to go back and say, but, but this, this is where I was and this is where I am right now. And I go backwards, but I don't ever go back as far. Does empowerment have anything to do with, uh, like, uh, coping mechanisms or self-care mm -hmm. in any way, too? Yeah, bang on. That's the, the coping tools that that everyone wants to scoff at and not be, not learn <laughs> because <laughs> because they're, the whole idea is very irritating. And, I, and, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to do my yeah. old coping tools because they're, they're not as obviously pathetic as that one. Um, yeah. Give me a beer. <laughs> yeah, <No. 
oh, no, I'm, I'm really smart. I can think my way out of it. Mm-hmm. No. And so coping tools, um, that's another way to empower people is for me to be able to tell people, you know what, if you, if you do this and, we, and do it every day, um, and I usually tell them, you know, program your phone and do it. Start by doing it three times a day. And, and yeah, or, or else if you have yeah. certain tasks, do yep. it before and after, that kind of thing. And and I say, you know, if you only get half of them done yeah. that way, uh, what you'll notice is that you can change mm-hmm. your day. Uh, you can do you it. You can change. Yeah. Can, can you give us like one concrete like mm-hmm. coping thing that might help us? Well, the, the breathing, intentional breathing, is, ah. is the bedrock piece. It's mm. behind every other coping tool, pretty much. So deep bre- the deep breathing techniques. The, yeah, and there's lots. Of, I, I put, um, I have links to those tools in, in where I, if I think I've found really good YouTube videos or really good articles about them, um, I've got them in there. And well, maybe I, we can put a couple links at the end of the show notes for people sure. today, too. Yeah, there's there's some just some ones that I think are really good and it being able to breathe your way out of a panic attack is like that it's like wow. Mm-hmm. I you know, I did it that time and even if you can only yeah. do it half the time, you know that half the time you can. Yeah. And and uh it, the more you do it you know, I have this mantra, don't think, breathe, don't think, breathe, don't think, breathe. And that is what saved my bacon is because my first instinct is, yes. let me let me consider all the information here. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> all the information is, you know, you need to breathe, Diane. That's all you yes. need to know. And, yes. And that will make it possible mm. for me to move further along. That's empowerment. Yeah, don't think, breathe. I could see for somebody it might be don't act, breathe. Yeah. <laughs> don't speak, breathe. Yes. I mean, just depending on yeah. uh, how how we uh, don't run, breathe. Yeah. And and you know one of the tools the subjective units of distress scale too. Yes. That's also about empowerment, self empowerment, because mm. it's creating self awareness and it's yeah. saying, oh gee, Diane, you're you're a seven out of ten. You know, maybe you should just shut up for a while. And, and the thing is, you have to accept that you're not going to actually do it well all the time. Mm. And so, you know, people are going to say, well, I won't. One time you did this. And you did yeah, because yeah, I screwed up. Yeah. That's right. I screwed up. And this is the relief of being a traumatized person. <laughs> 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 it's not that you have an excuse. It's that you can't argue that you didn't screw up. <laughs> okay, wow. yeah, I could have done a lot better with that, but I didn't. Wouldn't that be a nicer way to live as a human be- being, to, <laughs> yes. to, to, to be that gentle with ourselves? Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I screw think, up. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes, um, you know, that, that wagging finger at you, um, I, I think it's pretty uh, interesting to see how someone who's comfortable uh, not being really smooth and put together and to fall apart every now and then yeah 
how powerful that person is in the community. That's really an empowerment, isn't it? So our principle six is yeah. awareness of sensitivity to identifiable trauma-impacted groups within society. Yeah. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So um, in the CDC model, they just called it cultural, historical, and gender issues. Um, I re-expressed it so that we can understand that there are some groups in society that are more likely to be impacted by trauma than others. And that's all that means. And I mean, I have a huge list in there, like bullying survivors, you know, people who are responding to crisis all the time, uh, differently abled people, you know, all mm. these people who have yes. lived with obstacles to participate all the time, or who have put themselves in harm's way, or who have been consistently harmed by other people um, over time, or who've never been able to tell their truth they're not acceptable they're not included yeah. or they're included with conditions you know that kind of stuff that those people are more likely to be trauma impacted you can't live your whole life that way without yes having an impact on you with, without feeling safe really right back to our first yeah. one it's the false norm norm syndrome where mm -hmm. all the norms that people pretend are out there out, aren't out there for most people and that's why the I let the list of uh, the groups of who could be in that um, category I just let it grow and grow and grow because it's it reminds us that whatever norms we think are out there I don't know anybody that they apply to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's it seems to me that the majority of people could be in that group and yeah it's so much is invisible to us with a human it being, is. if it's not an obvious thing. Well, in this section, you, you ask the question, um, what do we do when the social contract isn't working for everyone? Yeah. And I think the pandemic has brought that up in spades yes. or, or uncovered it. Yeah, wh how would you answer that, like in terms of this model and trauma and being together as community? What do we do? Um, the social contract isn't working for everyone. Well, it's it's that truth is really difficult, and and we don't want it. That's why we don't listen to people who are telling us the truth, or we're telling them that they're yes. telling it the wrong way, or yeah. that they or we gaslight. Well, it didn't actually happen like that, or we blame shift. Well, what did you do to contribute to that? Mm -hmm. So, so the pandemic has exposed all kinds of stuff. And for example, here in Ontario, where I am right now. Um, what we understand about how they distributed vaccines, where uh, they went, they went to largely wealthy areas of Toronto uh, with older people who were predominantly white, and meanwhile the pandemic was like wildfire over in um, Jamestown. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the area of Toronto, um, sort of the northwest end of it. Um, yeah. where there were a lot of immigrant populations who were living without enough room in a house uh, uh, who had to keep working because they mm -hmm. were in mm -hmm. the service jobs that are low paying but in fact saved everybody's life because they kept working in, in places to keep things moving and get 
supplies in so we could eat, so we could have, you know, drugs, yes. whatever. Um, those people, and the caregivers, caregivers, uh, personal caregivers particularly, were all in those areas, and they were the ones who were most at risk for for getting it and giving it. Yeah. And it didn't, it took, they finally got that, like about, I don't know, about a year in, they finally realized they had to find a way to to get there. And then, then they, they had local pharmacies signed up. Well, then they discovered that, uh, that um, the, the better areas had tons of pharmacies. And, and uh, so again, they were offering vaccinations to the same areas all over again. And, oh. and these other areas might only have two pharmacies and they covered twice as many people. So they had to get mobile units out or to run, you know, pop-up clinics in places. They took them a while to understand um, that, you know, poverty uh, is, is an area, if, if you're in poverty um, or living in a poorer area, you will be less serviced by the system yes. designed to sustain itself. Yes. Yeah. And it's not that people didn't care about that when they became aware of it. It was that we were scrambling all the time to catch up to it. So that's, an in, that's sort of an example of, of how, how it works. Yeah. So... We've gone through the the six principles of a trauma-informed life or a trauma-informed ministry or trauma-informed response, safety, trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, empowerment, and awareness of and sensitivity to identifiable trauma-impacted groups within society. And so if we work with these, and let's say not perfectly, and no. we make mistakes, that's not the point of it, it's not a t- six-point plan, like what happens like what happens well we become more useful for one thing and um, we are able to salvage the connections that we need between people and uh, that's that's a huge way to to foster community when we are having other things taken away from us that build Mm -hmm. community to work with a trauma-informed response is about being intentional mm-hmm. and and taking the risks because just as you said, you're going to blow it. You're going to make mistakes all the way along, yep. and, and you have to be able to make them and move on. And and uh, I I think the strength of, of this is that you can pick one principle and just say, I'm going to focus on that for the next month and figure out what on earth it is. You can, so you can, you don't have to say, okay, next week I have to be, know how to work with every single one of these. Yeah. Um, no, I'm going to work on this and I'm going to think about, okay, in my office, how do we do this? In, in our, our work, our actual work that we do, yeah. um, in the community, how do we do this with mm-hmm. this to make it, working with this principle. So you you think about that, and that, that's the, the last section is where I look at all the different, I look at a whole bunch of ministry areas, where you can do that even in your 
your everyday living uh, as a family, or you can do it as a, if you're you have a business, or you have another kind of an organization that you're trying to run. How can we work with this principle so that we can still get something done? Oh, well, like you could think of just restaurants, which seem to be traumatic places depending where you live. Of do people feel safe? Is there trust? Do you have choice? Like, like you go through well, every one of them. Yeah, and and so number one is the first thing that so many restaurants did was to offer pickup. Yes. And that made it possible. <gasps> I can choose to have takeout food mm-hmm. because we learned that actually doesn't transfer through food. You know, yes. that's not how we get it. And, yeah. and so um, we discovered right away that that was a really good thing. And, and restaurants were very quick. If it was possible for them to do that, they did that. Yeah. Well, we've just covered a lot of stuff. I feel really full. Is there anything you want to say as we wrap up our time and your generosity? And, and I really appreciate how you, you, you're changing how I think or well, think and feel and uh, the whole thing around trauma. Uh, yeah. What, what are some final words that you have? Or I'm curious. Um, you, you could, don't have to succeed at all of it. If you can just find that you can do more by playing around with this stuff, you'll, you'll understand, oh, no, this is a good thing. And, and so, but you have to work with it. You have to at least try. And I think that people are capable of great things. First of all, there are some people who know how to do all this stuff right now because that's who they are in the world already it's more like people like me who who was in the world with some of the stuff but not all of it and trying to do difficult things in ministry like we do and not knowing why they didn't work Mm. and not knowing where to go with that yeah so i think there is a resistance to it and we talked a bit about that I think last time that we resist stuff because we like our old tools we like our old coping tools we, we think we know how to succeed yes. and so we, we are reluctant to lay them down you know if we have achieved success by controlling everything yeah, it's very hard to lay that down <laughs> <laughs> and we go on and, and the thing is, trauma changes us, and we often don't like that. Yeah. You know, I, I remember one client who was in her 70s, and you know, I was talking about the fact that because she was struggling with, she couldn't do things, and I said, well, we're changed. This may be some of the ways you're changed, and you're a different person now than you were, and, and and she started to cry. She just said, well, I liked my old life. I liked who I was. And like, there's a real grief, is what I'm saying. Yeah. For a lot of us in laying down coping tools and learning the irritating ones that hmm. are in my primer. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I, I'm a little more curious. Like you're, so you're saying that the pandemic has changed us, and we're still in it. But, but, by understanding trauma, being trauma informed, and having some type of trauma response, uh, it empowers us to to work with that change. Yes, it puts it back in our hands, mm. and. Uh, it's like anything that happens to anyone, uh, a catastrophe of any kind. It's, it's what you do with it. And, and you know, that's a, that's a choice that we don't always realize we have. And we don't mm-hmm. realize we have it because we don't want it. Mm-hmm. We don't want the choice. We just want what we had. Yeah. And we're not ready yet to... To, to accept that things have changed for us. We, or we, <laughs> yeah, uh, it is a powerful field, new field, and that's why people aren't sure they have anything to learn in it yet, and it's changing all the time. So. What sparked your curiosity in this episode? Do you sense a resiliency that was hidden before? From the conversation, where is hope leading you? If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, consider rating it, and sharing it with family and friends. This podcast is produced by McKillop United Church. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for the generosity of all of our donors. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com or mckillopunited.ca slash donate. Peace and blessings to you.